0: As we heard from Emily last week, an angel of the Lord appeared to the elderly priest Zechariah and brought some startling news. Zechariah, you in your old age will have a son with your aged wife, Elizabeth. As Zechariah, a person filled with faith, was still needing time to process that, and so he asked, how will I know this is so? I'm old. My wife's getting on in years, and the angel replied that because Zechariah had questioned his word, a sign of its validity would be that Zechariah would go mute until that prophecy came to fulfillment. Now, here's the rest of the story today, that after the birth of his son, who we know today as John the Baptist, God allowed the mute Zechariah to speak once again, and he began to utter praise to God. And then he launches into really a hymn of praise, which we call The benedictus from from the word blessed in Latin, from the Latin Vulgate, uh, the way this hymn begins. And although Zechariah is really praising God in context for the delight of becoming a father and giving birth to the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah, ironically, about 90% of his hymn isn't about his son. It's about the coming messianic king. And in this hymn, Zechariah expresses a number of messianic yearnings. I'm going to look for two, and also Zechariah gives each of us a challenge. So keep your ears attuned for those realities as Mary comes to read for us.
1: The scripture today is from Luke 1, verses 67 through 80. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Early in his hymn, Zechariah praises God for redeeming Israel. And if you notice closely, all the verbs are in the past tense. Zechariah is so certain of God fulfilling that redemptive promise that he expresses it as if it has already happened. Now, redemption is one of the key salvation words in Scripture, and it means literally to buy back, as if purchasing a slave's freedom. That's the image. So, redemption implies that all of us are in some kind of bondage. Now, this text, if you listen carefully, speaks twice about being in bondage to foreign enemies to human enemies. But Jesus and the Apostle Paul spend lots, lots more time speaking about our bondage to the deadly spiritual virus we call sin. Well, how will redemption take place? Who will be the instrument of God's liberation? Zechariah proclaims that God will raise up a mighty Savior, literally in the Hebrew, a horn of salvation. That was an Old Testament metaphor of the image of an ox or a bull standing in all its strength. It fits the Jewish expectation of the arrival of a Davidic messianic king, a direct descendant of King David of old. And we all know David certainly was not sinless. We remember the whole Bathsheba affair and all of the ensuing chaos that happened as a result of that. But Scripture itself speaks of David as a person after God's own heart. He certainly loves God, and after that horrible affair, he undergoes a dramatic, thorough repentance. David was also, and the people appreciated this especially, a warrior king who habitually led his army in battle, and they were almost always victorious, greatly expanding Israel's borders. Now, over time, after David, many Hebrew kings were huge disappointments, huge disappointments. In fact, if you read the books of Kings, uh, you're you're hard-pressed to find any that get a passing grade, even a D-minus. They're mostly absolute failures. They fail to obey God, and they fail to fulfill the prophetic hope that they would be like David, saving them from the hands of their enemies and all who hate us. And again, Zechariah is very focused on that particular expectation of human enemies. He mentions them twice. And suddenly, with Zechariah's words, we're plunged into the world of first century politics, or, or late first century B.C. politics. Zechariah and the Jews of his day tremendously resented, as anyone would, the occupying Romans and the heavy tax burden they imposed. In Jesus' day, a nationalistic movement was growing, even before Jesus' day, and it advocated violent rebellion against the occupying Roman oppressors. And it proclaimed that paying tribute to the Roman emperor was an act of disloyalty to Yahweh, who was, after all, king of the entire universe. So many first-century Hebrews expected this coming messianic king to lead this effort to reestablish Jewish national independence and self-rule. Zechariah's hymn reflects those sentiments. Israel was sick and tired of being bully fodder for surrounding superpowers. Think of it for a minute. Here's your national history. Think about this, how it would feel to have this history. Following the reign of David and others, the nation suffered being ruled over by a series of oppressors of foreign powers, the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and following the death of Alexander the Great, the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Seleucids in Syria, and then finally in the year 46 B.C., Roman general Pompey invades and makes Judea a new Roman province. Claims it for the Roman Empire. Who can blame the Jews for wanting to be free? And yet, friends, let's be honest, we all know that political liberation was not on the top of Jesus' agenda. He did not come to lead a revolution or engage in violence. In fact, he forbid his followers to use violence, as Dale reminded us from a text earlier in Luke, where Jesus commanded us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, do good to those who hate us. Jesus explicitly refuses to advocate or to participate in the violent revolution advocated by Jewish nationalists. Now, Swiss theologian Karl Barth affirms Jesus' perspective that the church's worst enemies, then and today, are not human enemies. He writes, its worst enemies are unbelief, superstition, and erroneous belief in which Satan has mixed his seed among the word of God. These are the real enemies. So friends, as the culminating revelation of the kingdom of God, Jesus stood squarely in his public ministry against the people, institutions, and spiritual forces that stood in opposition to God's kingly reign. Jesus won a great victory for us on the cross over the powers of evil, sin, and the devil, but not with physical warfare and violence. Rather, his weapons were his sinless life, his nonviolent resistance to evil, his redemptive death, and his victory over the grave. And having provided our redemption, freedom from our bondage to sin, Zechariah then speaks about a second messianic expectation of the coming of a universal age of peace. He writes that God would guide our way into peace. Zechariah looks forward to the dawning of a new day, a new age, when God will shine His light on us, showing the path to walk, guiding us into the way of peace, shalom, wholeness, The Apostle Paul writes that through his death and resurrection, Jesus reconciles us not only to God, but also to one another. And yet that ultimate, that final, that universal peace will have to wait until the risen Christ returns to consummate God's reign as King. A beautiful example of the peace Christ desires to bring to our world occurred on Christmas Day. 1914, in the midst of the First World War. Now, just to put it in context, we would not enter the war for another three years. In the trench warfare on the Western Front in Flanders, Scottish and French troops were on one side of this trench, and German troops were on the other side, and in between was a treacherous no-man's land. On Christmas Eve, the shooting on both sides suddenly stopped. Opposing soldiers joined in celebrating the birth of the Christ child. They came out of their trenches unarmed and in the midst of no man's land sang together Christmas carols, ate and drank together, played soccer together. They held a joint service to bury dead from both sides. And from what I've read, this was an impromptu ceasefire that stretched at least intermittently across most of the 500-mile-wide western front, from the Belgian coast to the Swiss border, where more than a million men were encamped. Just five months after the outbreak of war, what made it possible for these soldiers to treat one another as fellow human beings and to cease their slaughter for at least one full Day, To the horror, by the way, of the high command on both sides. The conviction that while one celebrated the birth of the Prince of Peace, one could not, in good conscience, engage in warfare. Reflecting this hope from Zechariah that the Messianic King would usher in an age of universal peace. So it's a wonderful hymn. We get the promise of redemption in Jesus Christ, although different than Zechariah conceived of it. We get the promise of a coming age of universal peace, but we also are presented with a challenge. Zechariah writes about our mission as we respond to Christ's gifts of redemption and peace. He says that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. So having been rescued and redeemed, we are called to serve God. As in the biblical teaching of divine election, for which our branch of the church is famous and takes a lot of criticism, God chooses people not only for intimate relationship and salvation, but for service as well, and that is universal. That means if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, then by definition you are a servant or a minister of the risen Christ. God calls every one of us to be his servants, no exceptions. Now this congregation's wonderful focus, I've been with you a short time, but I know my friend Dale, and his emphasis and your emphasis on community service is wonderful. Your mission giving, generous mission giving is wonderful. Um, So those, those elements of your church life beautifully capture that focus. And just to bother Dale for a minute, since he's in the back, uh, Dale is awesome. He spends time weekly at Juvenile Hall counseling young men, and that's wonderful and awesome. I just wish he wouldn't do it on his day off. (laughs) And thank you to all of you who are engaged in community service. That's bearing witness in a very, very profound way. One person historically you've probably heard of, but it's, it's a wonderful story, it's worth retelling, who served Jesus Christ tirelessly, was a, Brit, a, a devoted Christian, member of the British House of Commons named William Wilberforce. He put bills before the House of Commons to abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire almost annually, beginning in 1789. Actually, he worked on it even earlier than 1789. 1789 is significant in our history because it's the year our Constitution was ratified. He had heard firsthand from those who knew of the horrors of the Middle Passage as slaves were brought from West Africa to this continent. And here's a description, and it's graphic, and I apologize for that. They lie in a space four feet by 18 inches. They have no sanitation, very little food, stagnant water. Their waste and blood fills the holds within three days and is never emptied. Irons and chains are to keep them from throwing themselves overboard. Half die. When you finally reach the plantation, they put the iron to the fire and brand you to let you know that you no longer belong to God, but to a man. Well, friends, those in Parliament accused Wilberforce of desiring to destroy the entire British economy and hand over the lucrative slave trade to the French. He was opposed by very powerful business interests, by the royal family, and among others, by Admiral Lord Nelson. All his bills had failed. Nevertheless, Wilberforce faithfully continued his campaign. Once despondent, he was visited by former slave ship Captain John Newton, who we know as the writer of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton had become a Christian and an Episcopal priest and an ardent abolitionist. He encouraged Wilberforce not to leave politics, but to continue his struggle against slavery. And in the end, his life's work paid off. From his earliest efforts, it was a fill 46 years later, and only three days before his own death, when on July 26, 1833, when the bill for the abolition of slavery throughout the entire British Empire passed a second reading in the House of Commons. And in the process, Wilberforce went from being one of the most vilified men in all of Europe to one of the most respected and loved people on the planet. He lies buried in Westminster Abbey. Friends, This hymn of Zechariah asks each of us a question, and it is this. How are we serving God and Christ in this congregation, in this wider community, and yes, in this world that Christ died to redeem? Amen.